Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Body Wisdom Podcast. My name is Tammy Bullmash, and today we have an exceptional guest. Barrett Arkaya is going to be joining us. Barrett is a Master Alexander Technique teacher, singer, actress, and author. She was accepted to the Juilliard School of Music, and her appearance in theater led to a film contract with Paramount Pictures and later leading roles in TV soap operas. In 1968, she focused on singing. Using the method of Manuel Garcia and the self-discovery and freedom she experienced in this process set her on the creative path to which she remains dedicated. In 1971, she began to appear in concerts and orchestra tours in Europe. In 1974, Barrett won first prize in the Puccini Foundation vocal competition, making her debut at Avery Fisher Hall. In the same year, she began to teach singing. Barrett studied the Alexander Technique privately from 1975 until 1978, when she joined the ACAT New York Teacher Training Program under the auspices of Judith Lebowitz. She received her teaching certificate in 1981 and while continuing to sing and teach singing, she built a large teaching practice. Barrett was a founding member of the American Society for the Alexander Technique, or AMSAT. During this period, she concentrated on singing chamber music. In 1988, Barrett began giving master classes in Europe, combining voice and the Alexander Technique. She has taught and performed in Switzerland, Germany, Spain, Austria, Italy, and Venezuela. From 1992 until 1999, she gave an annual two-week intensive workshop in the Alexander Technique for Musicians at the Salzburg Easter Festival under the auspices of the Kaminsky Foundation. She taught voice and the Alexander Technique in Madrid from 1988 to 2001. While she was in Spain, she helped to found APATE, the Spanish Society of Teachers. In 1996, she retrained with Walter and Dillis Carrington in London and completed another three-year graduate training with them. She finished her studies at Constructive Teaching Center in 2005. Barrett is a member of the Swiss, Spanish, English, and American Societies for the Alexander Technique. In 2015, Barrett published her book, Understanding the Singing Voice, Volume 1, and Volume 2 is in preparation. She continues to maintain a very active teaching practice as well as continuing her singing. I've personally been fortunate enough to have met Barrett years ago thanks to a very high recommendation from my trusted and beloved Alexander Technique teachers, Shaika and Linda Hermlin, who are the heads of my Alexander Technique training course. And since then, what I've le learned from Barrett through her words and her lessons have helped me both personally and professionally, and they usually go hand in hand. And I'm very, very, very excited to have Barrett here today. So Barrett, welcome to our show. Tammy, thank you so much for arranging this. It's so dear of you. And well, I'm very it's, happy I'm here. It's a pleasure and an honor. And I wanted to ask you, where are you right now in this corner of the world? <laughs> I'm in Halifax, Nova Scotia. In, oh. In the, one of the Atlantic provinces, Nova Scotia. How fantastic. It sounds very yeah. cold. <laughs> Is it cold? Uh, it's cool, but it isn't cold, actually. We're right on the Atlantic Ocean, so we get a lot of, of um, that Gulf Stream almost coming up here. 
It's quite oh. nice, actually. We oh. have a, a, a nice weather. How fantastic. We have power outages, but we have nice weather. <laughs> it sounds wonderful. I've never been, but uh, I would like to go one day. So, Barrett, uh, what I wanted to talk to you about today is uh, something that you started and something that has been so helpful to me and many other Alexander Technique teachers who haven't been able to continue their uh, in-person teaching. Um, the pandemic has certainly changed a lot of things for people. And you created an opportunity for many of us, which is this online class that we've been able to take part in, where we discuss some of F.M. Alexander's great works, his books. Um, and F.M. Alexander is the founder of the Alexander Technique. And I wanted to know, how did you come about this idea to teach lessons in this way? Well, that's a that's a double question. So um, I have a former pupil of mine. I had a training course for a short time. I had to close it after the first year because there was a problem with the space I was renting. And briefly, um, I have a young colleague who said, why don't you and I do a reading group online? And I thought, well, Okay, if that would be interesting. I love reading his books and they can be tough. There are kind of speed bumps built into the into the writing. You've got to slow down. So we decided to start with the use of the self because this is how he came about this for himself. This is how he actually um, found his way out of his difficulties himself. So we decided to try, I decided the use of the self because we're all on our own here. And it seemed to me that it would be good to really, really take a time to follow his process and how he was thinking. And then that same colleague of mine uh, said, you really should try to teach one-on-one -on -one online lessons. And I thought, no, 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 that isn't going to work. And it's just, no. And then I realized how pig-headed I was <clears throat> and what a fixity of ideas that I had. And with great reluctance, I said, all right, I've thought about it. I'm going to ask a couple of people if I can give them lessons and what they think. And to my utter astonishment, it really helped them. Because I'm all about how important the hands are. Alexander says repeatedly, I tried to tell people about this and they couldn't understand it. And I had to put my hands on them. And he talks about what he calls expert manipulation in his books. And it just, I thought, oh, I don't think so. To my surprise, yes, it does work. I'm not too quick to say I would give lessons to someone in off the street, someone who has never had a lesson in their lives. Um, 
I don't know that that would be too wonderful. I, in fact, did try it. I did not charge for it. And this was somebody who lives in New York. He's a doctor. And he's, he needs hands-on. And I was able to send him to a colleague who has started one-on-one -on -one lessons in Manhattan now. And he, he did very well. And then he gave it up. Mm. So it's too bad. But at least he knows, you know, that it's there. Right. And the important thing is that you realize that it's about one's thinking. It's about your conception of something. And that will lead you to working better. And then you can stop and rethink. And that will work even better. So that you're always making a kind of uh, gauge, I suppose between how you're thinking and how it's working for you. But you've got to go slowly, you've got to stop. So I've been going slowly and I have been stopping a lot in terms of the pandemic. And I've been using the time to encourage my pupils to do the same thing. I think it's, it's very important, but we can definitely do without a teacher. He did without a teacher. He really did. And he's, he says, you know, you can do what I do if you did what I did. <laughs> yeah. That's what he says. Yes. Yes. You know, that is the technique. I mean, we're, that's what we want to teach people is how to be able to teach themselves. Uh, that's the idea mm -hmm. is to not be dependent mm -hmm. on a teacher. But um, I thought that this, this whole uh, type of um, learning this continued learning for me to have the, the reading of these books every week has just been so wonderful to keep working on myself be reminded about the principles of the technique and to go back to the books and uh, there is one particular passage that you read in our last class that i just loved um, and i'd like to ask you if if you wouldn't mind reading it it's uh the one that is going to be addressing our topic today which is understanding the roles of habits in our lives and this passage is um, from the chapter incorrect conception under the section out of shape from the constructive conscious control of the individual book and it's on page 90. Well I'm going to have to get that up. There it is. Okay, okay. so you know when I read his books I will sometimes simplify things here and there. Hmm? Yes. In connection with unreliable sensory appreciation, feelings, how you feel, and with perverted ideas or concepts of what is right or wrong, where the human being's use of himself is concerned. The following is a most significant illustration. A little girl who had been unable to walk properly for some years was brought to the writer for a diagnosis of the defects in the use of her mind-body self, which were responsible for her more or less crippled state. When this had been done, a request was made that, I, that a demonstration should be given to, the, to those present of the manipulative side of the work. The child, of course, to be the subject 
to be manipulated. So that certain readjustments and coordinations might be temporarily secured, showing, in keeping with the diagnosis, the possibilities of re-education on a general basis in a case of her kind. The demonstration was successful from this point of view, and for the time being, the child's body was comparatively straightened out. That is, without the extreme twists and distortions that had been so noticeable when she came into the room. When this was done, the little girl, uh, this just jumped, sorry. The little girl looked across at her mother and said to her in an indescribable tone, oh, mommy, he's pulled me out of shape. Here indeed is food for reflection for everyone concerned in any attempt to eradicate mind-body defects. In accordance with this poor little child's judgment, her crookedness was straightness. Her sensory appreciation of her out-of-shape condition was that it was in shape. Imagine then what would be the result of her trying to get anything right by doing something herself, as she has, had always tried and had always been urged to try to do while she was practicing the remedial exercises according to the direction and under the guidance of a teacher. Small wonder that all these attempts to reach her had resulted in failure. Consideration of the foregoing must lead us to a full realization of what would have been the psychophysical mind-body condition of such a child when she'd reached adolescence. If the orthodox methods of teaching in all these areas had been employed to help her, the child's remark is proof positive that where her defects were concerned, her ideas and conceptions, you have to scroll up please, were dominated by her sensory mechanisms. And that this sensory appreciation was not only unreliable, but actually delusive. Her experiences in connection with the functioning of herself were consequently incorrect and harmful ones. And as her judgment in these spheres was the result of these experiences, small wonder that her, her judgment of what was right and what was wrong in her case were not only practically worthless, but constituted a positive danger to her future development. Unless in such cases, a child is re-educated and re-coordinated on a basis of conscious control. The child cannot acquire a new and reliable sensory feeling. And lacking this, it will grow up employing guiding sensations which are delusive and which tend to become more and more so 
with the advance of time. Incorrect experiences and bad judgment will be associated with this delusive guidance of the mechanisms of her functioning and all its efforts in the different areas of the activities of life will be in accordance with this functioning. The point that comes out clearly in all these illustrations is that concepts, ideas, which are mainly influenced by unreliable feeling sense, acting and reacting subconsciously and harmfully on the processes involved, that is the processes of life, are incorrect concepts and that in these cases, unreliable feeling sense goes hand in hand with incorrect and deceptive experiences in the psychophysical functioning. Thank you for that. I love hearing you read. I absolutely love it. It's, it's just a lesson in and of itself is listening to you read. It's wonderful. Um, that, that is a wonderful passage, I thought. And um, I'm wondering if you'd be able to explain it in, in more layman terms for people that aren't really familiar with the technique. Because, you know, F.M. Alexander, he, he wrote quite beautifully, but it's a bit dated and uh, hard, to under <laughs> hard to understand. <laughs> well, <clears throat> yes. Basically, he's talking about a child. I spoke to Walter and Dillis about it, and I asked Patrick McDonald about it too. And he said the child was about eight when he came, when she came to Alexander, seven or eight. We would think that that child was quite uh, neurotic. He's Alexander is describing the physicality of what we would call neurosis, where at such a young age, everything is all every which way in this little person. And that opens a topic for, for an exploration of all kinds of deceptive um, situations that can happen in a human being. But I would say that the child was pliable enough to allow Alexander to work with her. And she must have felt an enormous estrangement from her usual way of being. And I can just imagine the indescribable tone where she tells her mother, basically, I walked in here as one person, and now I don't think I could walk across the room to you. My balance is so changed. What has he done to me? This is so wrong. I couldn't possibly do anything like this. How could this be, how could this be comfortable? I don't know who I am. That's what I take from that passage. And that if you, if you then take what Elsie says here, 
what happens to this child in adolescence when most of her friends are able to dance and play sports or make connections, she would be more and more and more disabled, more and more crippled looking. And that's, that's opening that child for ridicule and bullying and feeling marginalized and less than. So I think he's really talking about one of his favorite topics, which is that this work is preventative. And what better place to start with prevention than with the child and stopping the child from going wrong. So I think there's a lot in that summed up in there. Yeah. Um, I'm always surprised when people like the way I read the work because I, I do a very fast editing as I'm, I don't change anything except maybe modernize some things. And I take out his constant reiterations that could actually lose you in the flow of the idea. Yeah. Yes. I, I agree. I think a part of the repetition in his writing is that he's trying to drill it in. <laughs> to, you, you know. bet. You <laughs> yeah. bet he is. So, yes. Yeah. And, and I know. again and again and again. Yeah. Yes. And I yeah. know I need it. I know I need it. And during my training, when we would uh, read the books, it, it was very much lost on me. And now um, it's still the language is still, um, it's, it's hard to digest. But I what I love about the way that you read is that you really take your time. And I, I just, you have so much direction. That's the thing about, I think, you and just being a master teacher is that you are who you are in all that you do. So your direction is not just showing in how you use your body, but it's part of using your, your whole mind body is also the way that you speak. And so it's um, instantly when I, I come to the class, I hear your voice and I can just feel my, my neck, I, I can sense my neck relaxing and freeing, sensing, see, I, <laughs> I learned well, that. I have, to, I have to say something there. Yes. It isn't that, that I'm so unique in putting myself into what I do. Everyone puts themselves completely into what they do. It's just sometimes, more often than not, it's unfortunate. So we are always completely integrated, completely. That little girl was completely integrated into her twistedness, her, her bollocked upness. Yes. She was completely integrated into it. Yes. You know, I, I don't think of myself as a master teacher. I don't know what a master teacher is. I, every lesson I give is a lesson I take. Everyone. Uh, my, my teachers are my pupils and the books. And stopping and just considering, you know, how am I, what, how am I going about things? That the buck stops here with me. That it's, if, if I'm having a problem with something, what can I learn from that? That's a good opportunity. You know? Absolutely. 
So I have lots of opportunities every day, you see. <laughs> yeah, well, I think that's the beauty of the technique is that we're always working on ourselves when we work yeah. with our students. So it's, it's mm -hmm. never just us giving them a treatment. It's us working oh. on ourselves and giving a lesson. It's a very yeah. different kind of concept than what most people are used to. Oh, yes. Uh, so it's yes. you know something that I, I tell my students often is that if you think about a person that you turn to for help, if they have poor use, then that is going to impact whatever it is that you're receiving from them, whether it's a massage or an operation. It's if, if the person giving this service is not aware of how they're using their body, then they, they can't possibly know the kind of tension that they're putting into whatever work that they're trying to, to do. Right. Right, that's true. Of course, it's not just one's body, is it? It's one's whole self. Yes. yes. And this is a very tough concept because we don't even have one word. As far as I know, not in any language on the planet is there one word for the unified self, mind-body integration, complete embodiment of self. You know, I have to patchworks together i have to cobble them together with hyphens yes. maybe in german i don't speak german but possibly because they can take six words and make one word out of it <laughs> <laughs> they might have a word for that i don't know but the idea of a divided self is still something that is setting us back yeah our sets our pupils back and it sets us back because we have, we don't have the vocabulary. We have to make a vocabulary. That's why his writings are tough. The ideas that he expresses were completely new. And then he had the rather formal 19th, late 19th century uh, way of style and writing and and being. He also had not had a formal education to speak of. It isn't that he would have gone to Oxford or Cambridge at that time and taken English writing courses or something. So these, these ideas that he puts forth and the problems of how you convey that with the language. That's what we're stuck with. Yes. But we can, you know, we slow down, we, we read it. If you read the books like that to yourself, you'll get a lot out of it. Yes. I, f I find that it's easier to, it, to listen. <laughs> and at this point, um, I think that that is, that's what I love so much about your classes, is that it's not just the reading, it's the discussion afterwards mm -hmm. and uh, really thinking and taking the time. And sometimes at least when I read, I don't give myself as much permission to really stop and pause. And I don't really have anyone to discuss it with when I'm reading with myself other than to just kind of ponder on my own. But um, that's the beauty of having a class, especially with this. It's, uh, it's just been an invaluable experience for myself. Oh, wonderful. And, yes, I love wonderful. it. And, and it actually reminds me of something else that I wanted to um, also ask you, uh, there was another um, thing that you said, I, I often write down the quotes and the things that you say during our <laughs> lessons, because I have so many, I have a, a folder of just you know, Barrett oh. quotes uh, that I love. And you mentioned something that um, 
I thought was really hard to uh, explain it. I thought you you said it really beautifully. Um, and someone in in the in the class towards the end of the class, they described a scenario and in a lesson, an Alexander technique lesson, where a teacher might point something out which is quite obvious to the teacher and not obvious to the student, which happens quite often. Um, and it's usually tension. And you you said the following: you said. When you say to a student, you lead with the arm, and the student focuses on their bad shoulder or their good shoulder, it's the idea that makes you brace. The idea is getting over that idea. It gives you an opportunity to take your reasoning and intellect and make a decision that I'm not going to jump there or rigidify. You make that step and it has ramifications. You're on the road to self-mastery. So what does that mean? Well, <clears throat> let's say that I were to ask a student to raise an arm for me. And I say to them, now before you do that, just come to all of this and think about widening. Just imagine that. Imagine your neck is going back from your collarbone, that there's this diamond shape here. And that's all releasing. And just imagine it. And I might say, well, you might imagine the color towels you have in your bathroom. Like that. Imagine it. And then they do this, for instance. And I say, well, you, you led with your arm there. You shoved your arm and that's because the idea that you got basically from what i just asked you to do was based on an old way of thinking that the teacher is going to ask you to do something like that you're going to do it and be a good student that if you can realize that and realized, oh, I lurched there. Or if you can realize, I didn't even, didn't even bother me that she asked me to move the hand that's this my bad shoulder. If you can realize that, you have an opportunity to really learn what thinking is. Thinking, as people cons conceive that, is actually a very misunderstood idea. This work is all about thinking. We feel that we think. We feel we've heard what the teachers just said to us, we feel we know perfectly well, raise my arm, okay? But we don't know that thinking is actually something that you get with the hands on. When we put our hands on someone, we're teaching them to think. That's what we're doing. And the slower we go, the deeper the thought of the students, when you ask them to direct, for instance, I asked my pupil to direct and raise her arm or his arm. 
So I would be looking more for a long time or however much time the student needed to raise an arm and think, well, now if I go any higher, I'm going to tighten. If I go any higher, okay, I can, I can let that shoulder drop. That's interesting. That shoulder's my bad shoulder. Bad shoulder. Good shoulder. You know. That's how you want them to think. But you've got to teach them what thinking is. And you've got to get them to take the time. So in that scenario, I would point that out. And I would point out the way they lurched into a movement. And I would most likely um, ask them to let me take their arm. And if they can't, I would ask them to see, I would ask them, can you feel that you've gripped your shoulder here? Can you feel that you're gripping your arm? You're not just letting me take, take that arm. You're gripping as I'm raising that arm. And usually they can feel that. Whether they can feel it or not, I ask them to really do the wrong thing. I say, I'm going to take your arm, and as you feel me doing it, I want you to grip. And we do that. And then I say, that's fabulous. How did you do it? And they'll think about that, and they may not even know. But I do it with them again, the wrong thing, until they can figure out what it is they did. And then I say, fabulous. Now, that's what you're not going to do. We don't know what you're going to do, but it is not that. And, and I will just take your arm again. And I could lift your arm more. I could. But you're just not going to lift the shoulder. That's wonderful. Let's do it again, and I want you to lift your shoulder. Okay. Do it again. Wrong. There it goes. Good. That's the tightness. That's what you, you have a PhD in tightening yourself. <laughs> you really don't need to come here for a lesson with me and get a postdoctoral on that one. Right? After uh, all, you did say it was your bad shoulder. Unless you're here for bad shoulder lessons, which, <laughs> you know, I don't, I don't do that. <laughs> Go to someone else. Uh, and then they can actually decide here, I will or I will not tighten. That's the beginning of self-mastery. And the way you teach that is you have to put your student into a head-on collision with an experience repeatedly. And that doesn't mean pushing them into it. You have to set up conditions for the student in such a way that you've got 99% surety that they are going to have the experience that you'd like them to have. Then, little by little, they get aha. When they have an aha, they've learned something. Is the, 
the lessons are not about me, Barrett, the master teacher, or any of that crap. It's about what can you do for yourself? What can you, how can you learn to stop and really understand what thought is? Thought radiates through us. Thought is, thought is embodied in every bit of you. And it's embodied that way, whether you are a clunk and a pig headed and difficult and you alienate everybody, your thought is also embedded. We're just saying, let's come to consciousness. Let's be able to stop and think differently. Very, very hard because we're all so wedded like that little girl. We're all so wedded to the self that we know. And that's thinking and feeling and moving and acting and accepting in from the outside. All that's done through this filter of, of all this mishmash. So we're, we're trying to straighten out that filter with the conscious cooperation of the pupil. Yes. And that's really why it can't be done for anybody. You have to do it with them. Yeah, I, I, as as you're uh, talking about this, I'm thinking of you know the word habit. You know the habits yeah. that lead us, and um, and I think just for people listening that aren't familiar with the technique, I think um, it kind of describing um, all of these scenarios, especially with a little girl. Um, and, mm -hmm. and, and this is something that happens also also with students that come to me is that I'll, I'll try to untangle them or I'll try to guide them into becoming more lengthened. <laughs> and then it, they say, oh, this this feels wrong. You know, this feels wrong. So it, mm -hmm. it was it happened with my husband, you know, the first time uh, that I worked with him. And this is how I knew that I wanted to marry him because he was so interested in the technique. He was very much. Um, he's a, a physics guy he thinks of physics so the the concept of thinking was was something that he was very much drawn to and when i worked with him and he said i don't know what you've done to me but this feels very wrong and then a, f a few um you know hours later he's like this feels great i feel great he he opened up and so this idea of what we think that we do is right because it's familiar and then we try this new experience and this undoing of our habit can feel mm -hmm. quite wrong to people. Mm -hmm. And and that's a very hard concept for a lot of people to understand because they're used to going to someone to treat them and they feel better. But when you mentioned that bad shoulder, they could go to some kind of therapy and, and then just aggravating that shoulder even more. It's the opposite of releasing and undoing. And I think the concept of what we do is so hard for people to understand. What is this undoing? What, what are, is these, this habit that we're talking about? Well, habit is, by definition, um, it is an immediate, instantaneous response to a stimulus, right? And we all have, have habits, some of which are very good habits, and some so-so and some really not good habits. 
And it's very difficult to separate out the way we feel ourselves to identify with our habits from our habits. Because familiarity, of course, is the grease on the habit wheel. So if, for instance, I smoke and I know that's bad for me and I know I've got to get rid of that habit and I know that I'm just making this up because I never smoked, but <laughs> uh, I know that I started at 12 and my mother would have killed me if she'd known, but my friends all did it and I wanted to fit in. And I've stopped over the years and picked it up again and I'm really frustrated. Well, one of the things you'd have to know to break that habit, all that information is very interesting. Why did you start smoking? That's always very interesting, but you won't change anything knowing that. You will still get that yen, that feeling that you must have a cigarette. And when you realize, for instance, that there are triggers to the yearning for the cigarette. For example, someone who's always smoked and had a, a cup of coffee might walk down the street outside, just smelling outside of a coffee shop, this great smell of coffee, and they get down to the end of the block and they get this yen for a cigarette. If they don't put those together, they're going to have a hard time stopping and thinking, okay, I see what happened there. I was like Pavlov with the dogs, or Pavlov's dogs, right? Basically, we get conditioned by our habits, and our habits tend to define us. And our habits go unquestioned until such time that in my illustration, the doctor says, well, Barrett, you know, I don't give you much more time to fool around here with cigarettes. We're gonna to have to put you on some patches, on some pills, right? And you just can't smoke the way you do. You can't have five packs a day anymore, <laughs> not even two. <laughs> okay. So in comes the Alexander technique. <clears throat> and the technique says, what if you were to stop and you could notice what happens subconsciously to you when you get that yen, that, that that goes on, that you've never noticed? We can show you that. And yet your doctor's right, and you might get help with the symptoms of the yen for smoking with the patches or the pills. But the habit is still there and it will come out in other ways. It will be change happening by um, a different expression. It won't really change. You'll still be driven by habit and you'll still be as uh, much a slave to your habit as you always were you will not be the master of yourself as you would like to be. Interesting about smoking, uh, Alexander talks about liking a good cigar every once in a while. 
I could say the same thing for a cigarette. If somebody, you know, once a year wanted a cigarette, okay. I wouldn't, but okay. It's like anything else. It's moderation. How do you learn not to be excessive? How do you learn not to be uh, at the mercy all the time of your feelings? If I don't have a cigarette, I'm just going to jump out of my skin. You know, people have said that. I've heard people say that. Yes. So this work would take that smoker and open them up to noticing all kinds of, uh, to them at first, subtle grabbings and holdings. Then they could start to notice when they got a yen for a cigarette, they were pulling down. And they could think, oh, that's interesting. Huh. You know, um, I'm coming back on this street in an hour after I have this appointment. I'm walking back to the subway the same way. I'm going to just keep my length and stand there in front of that Starbucks and see what happens to that yen. Wouldn't that be interesting? Absolutely. I, I think you absolutely I nailed it on the head. It's the stimulus and the stimulus, if it's not addressed, mm -hmm. it doesn't go away because smoking, if you quit smoking somehow, and then you still have that stimulus, that whatever that tension is that's leading you to want Most that. people eat. Right. Most people eat. Yeah. You know, they'll gain their 30 pounds. Right. Exactly. And so it doesn't go away. It's the stimulus, if it's not addressed or if you're not aware of it, then it, it just becomes something else. It can, you know, that's why you have people that battle with weight for so long. They become either underweight, overweight, and, it, and it's the habit underneath all of that. And, and that's, I think, part of the reason it's very hard to explain the Alexander technique is because this idea of habits in the way that Alexander explained it and discovered it is quite novel. I, we, we are now in this age of awareness where it's a buzzword, awareness and mindfulness, but the way that Alexander presented it, you know, over a century ago was very novel at the time. And I still oh, yeah. think it's very unique. Well, he says so succinctly that it's about facing things that always put you wrong and dealing with them differently. Yeah. That's really what the work, work is. Can you stop and think, hmm, I always have a problem with this. How can I deal with it differently? What can I do in myself that will improve this? And then if you can stop and think that way, rather than be miserable because you're such a failure and you can never get it right, and you try and try, and it's still awful, you know, rather than going down that road with your thought and your energy and yourself, stopping and thinking, hmm, how can I, how could I deal with this a little differently? What am I doing to myself when I even think about that situation? 
I can be, I am very confrontational as a teacher. It is, sometimes I've had students come in for a lesson and I get the sense right away that's going to be hard for them. And I tone it way down. And they'll even say, I have, for instance, I have five mirrors. Alexander had four. I've got five in my studio. And I use them for myself. And I've had students say to me, I hate looking at myself. And I'll say, okay. And I just turn the mirror around. They're all on wheels and they're mobile. I'll say, okay. And I turn the, the mirror around. And that says, I don't want to know about myself. I'm here to know about myself, but not really. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Okay. And you have to respect that. Yeah. And this, this work is not me shoving something down someone's throat. And I will work with them for a while. And I will take photographs of them on their phone and show them. Not necessarily, and you're treading a fine line because you don't want them to think, oh, I came in in this posture and now I'm here. She wants me to be there, but I'm here, but at least I'm not there. You don't want them thinking about posture. Right. Uh, but maybe it's the only way they can think at the right. beginning. It's a starting point. It's a starting point. But there is a point where I expect someone to be able to meet me in the teaching process. Otherwise, I'm not learning anything from them. And I want to learn something, you know? This isn't just a one-way street where they get and I don't. Right. I have to learn. So I would be learning, what do I do with a student who's very avoidant of directness? And there have been students so difficult to work with, and I knew I could work with them, that I've smiled and said, I think I'm going to suggest a couple of other people for you to go to. And I'd like you to try lessons with them and see what you think. And then if you'd like to continue with me, that's fine. If not, that's fine. Because I just don't like wasting a day of one's life, mine or yours or anybody's, without taking it, taking it and loving it and having the opportunity of the time to really change things that you, you know are setting you back in life. Yes, it's, uh, it's, it's the choice, and I think that that's uh, something that I love about, about your oh, my website. website habit and choice because you basically just explained that. It's a yep. choice. You First of all, it's a choice if you want to continue to have a lesson. No one's forcing yep. you to do it. It's yep. a choice if you want to teach a pupil. No one is forcing yep. you to do it. And it's a choice in how you want to engage in life. I mean, that's... Yes. That's right. That's right. And we are, all of us, defined by the choices that we make. And those choices come out of habit, mostly habit of thinking. Mm -hmm. Yes. And yeah, I mean, I, I feel very honored to be able to work in this, in this area. And I know we will never be very popular, not like yoga or Pilates or 
PT or any of that, that's fine. You know, I mean, this is a very, I'm sorry to say it's elitist. It doesn't mean you have to have pots of money to study. Because I really think that if you don't have much money and you really want to study and you read those books, you will find a teacher who will admire that and help you. I have taught lessons for $5 a lesson. Wow. And I continue to teach for practically nothing with some students because they need the work and they're wonderfully interesting people. So I don't know if, uh, if I could put it in one, one simple way, habits and the choices you make around the habits define you and they ultimately shape your life for better or worse. Yes. And what might be a good choice for you or for me is not necessarily a good choice for someone else. External situations are very different from person to person. Uh, the world is not fair and it probably never will be fair. So we don't have a level playing field for all human beings. But we all could come more conscious. We could all allow the unconscious to become more conscious about what are we doing with ourselves? Yes. I, it, it makes me think now about um, what you're saying. You, you're one of the few teachers that I know of, probably the only one that I know of, that have actually taken part in two training courses. And it's something that I admire <laughs> about you. And the last time we spoke, you said if you could do a third one, you would. And, I would. And, and, this, and I would too, if I would do a second one, third. Um, and it's something that I just admire about you so much is the way that, you know, you're not threatened by continued education, you embrace it. Whereas a lot of people think, you know, I've gotten this degree and I'm the top of my, you know, field and that's the end. And, and you look, I mean, you're one of the most well-known teachers in the world, sought after teachers in the world. You're personally, I've, I can speak from experience. I've had lessons with you that I just think about. They have put me back on my path multiple times and you oh. have helped me tremendously, tremendously. And uh, it's an honor and a privilege, not only to speak to you today, but also to, to have had lessons oh. with you. And I really appreciate that. And, um, but I just want you to, if you would, just share a bit more before we, we finish up today, why do you say if you could, you know, have a third training course today, you would? Why, why do you believe that? Oh, well, I would love to be in a room with first generation teachers again, where I could take my capacity to stop and think into a greater refinement. Um, I have a lot yet to learn. I have a very far way to get to go. And when you're in a room with teachers like that, and there are other trainees and maybe a few teachers assisting, and you're all of a like mind, you can 
you can put your hands on someone like in a very beginner way, like a hand here and a hand there, like, you know, the first second term of putting hands on, you know, where a teacher puts your hands on the person where you can go through that experience again and say to yourself, I don't know anything about this. I don't know anything about this. Whatever I did before I came into this course, that's then. This is now. And I can just stop and I can feel my feet on the ground. I can feel that little spot in front of my heels where my weight can descend. Ah, I was holding a little bit in my, in my lower back. I could let that go. That's nice. My shoulders let go. You can make this entirely about yourself. If you do, let's say you go instead, there's a, a teacher's um, trade room where you exchange and it's at a conference. There's almost always this unacknowledged this unacknowledged kind of rating system. Well, she said he was so-and-so. I never thought much about that training. <laughs> we'll see. I've heard a lot about her, but we'll see. Well, she's, she's come from such and such, and she's, um, she seems like a nice person. Let's see. And so there's this this aura of how you're going to fit into the pecking order within the Alexander world, which is full of ego. It's full of, let me show you how much I know. Uh, I would like you to admire me at the end of it. That is so frustrating. You can't really stop and learn that way about yourself. And when, when someone puts their hands on me, I get a reading of me, but also of them. And you're learning about this interface in a training course such as does not exist anymore because they're all gone. All those teachers are gone. There's an, like a membrane between yourself and the hands that you've put on that person you're working with, who's a student like you, and the way you give that and the way you receive that. Because you can only know from your nervous system, right? You can't know from theirs unless they tell you, oh, I just felt such and such, or I think your wrists are tight, Barrett. Or, you know, I think you could direct out your elbows more. Or I could say, I think you're a little tight in your ankles. Whatever. You don't get that opportunity anywhere but in a course like that. I had a great, great, great music teacher. I was so fortunate. And I said to him one day, what do you do when you want to take lessons? And he said, to tell you the truth, it's one of the worst things about being at the top of a profession. 
there's almost nobody you can go to and learn anything. And he was very sad about it. He said, I can't go as a student because there's always this tension. Like if I teach you something, that means you were a little stupid, weren't you? Oh, if I can teach you something and you can't learn it, that means you're a little stupid, isn't it? Isn't it so? Rather than just having an experience of oneself, it gets polluted. So that's why I'd like to go to one of those training courses again. If you hear of one, you <laughs> I'd like to go to. But yes, it's, uh, I, 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 I'm so glad that you mentioned that because I think that also what's happened now, as you mentioned with the egos, that's really just a result of habits, isn't it? It's just the, the, the habitual it's, way of it's thinking. It's vulnerability. Yeah. It's vulnerability. This work will bring out all of your vulnerabilities. That little girl was saying, I am so vulnerable, mommy. He has stripped me totally of every way I know myself to be. And I'm standing here in total vulnerability. Why did you bring me to this man? Why were you so mean? That's all in there. Yeah. And it's, uh, yeah. We all have work to do, I think, on ourselves, no matter where we are in the pecking order or whatever true, that pecking true. order is. <laughs> yes, yes. The thing is, don't take the pecking order to heart. Yes. You know, when you, when you, are in a dynamic where there's a pecking order. What I do is I say, the hell with it. Pecking order for you, maybe, not for me. <laughs> yes. Yes. Oh, this is so wonderful to talk to you. Um, I could talk to you for hours and hours, but oh, I won't keep you. you. Mutual. Thank you, Barrett. Um, is there you, any, it's, it, this has really been wonderful. We didn't get to all the questions that I wanted to, but uh, hopefully we'll have another opportunity to do this again. Sure. And mm -hmm. is there anything that you would like to say in closing that you would like to say to the listeners? Um, anything to remember or think about? If you think about posture, go to any dictionary and you will see attitude. Mm. Your attitude is not just how you're standing or where your shoulders are or are you slumped or not or this or that. It's about how you interact with yourself on this planet and then from that with everyone and how they can interact with you. So if you're interested in the Alexander Technique, it is very deep. It's very fun. Every lesson should be really fun. And every lesson should provoke you into getting more to be good friends with yourself. What you want to look at is your thinking. You want to look at the things that you would like to change. And then seek out a teacher. Wonderful.
Yeah. I love that. Hopefully we'll be able to teach again in person. Hope so. Soon enough. Um, anyway, thank you so much for joining us today. And uh, Barrett, have a wonderful rest of your weekend. And thank you, uh, Tammy. You, you too. Okay, thank you. Bye.